Welcome to the Food Intelligence Podcast brought to you by TasteWise. My name is Ron and joining with me as usual, Miriam. Today we're talking about alternative proteins as it is Alternative Protein Month here at TasteWise. So we're going to go into that in a bit more detail right now. So let's get into it. Miriam, thank you so much for joining me once again. True pleasure, as always. Um, one of our listeners is none other than my mom. Hey, mom. Um, maker of uh, the Spanish tortilla omelet, not a casserole. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had a comment for us that in other podcasts that she listens to, which was news to me that she listens to podcasts, so way to go, mom. Her comment was that I don't say my name at the beginning the Food Intelligence Podcast with Ron, Ron. I guess, as as the host. The mystery voice you all have been listening to is none other than Ron Harnix. (laughs) (laughs) I just felt like the less interesting part of the conversation. Give yourself some credit. Yeah. Um, So today and throughout this whole month, we're going to be talking about alternative proteins. So we have a big alternative proteins report coming out in August 18th. So this whole month, month of August, if you're listening to this uh, when it comes out, is going to be Alternative Protein Month in everything that we do at TasteWise. So all of our podcast episodes are going to be around alternative proteins. Our uh, TasteWise live shows that we do every week, our kind of research session, demo sessions that we do that you can sign up on the website, those are all going to dive really deep into specific alternative protein trends. And uh, we're also going to be doing a webinar and a bunch of other activities. So keep your eye on this space um, on LinkedIn, on our uh, on our website. It's going to be really, really exciting. We're all super excited about it. And today we thought we would kind of kick off Alternative Protein Month with sort of a primer into alternative proteins, the different types, uh, the drivers for it. So where should we start? I think we should start the best place to start, which is right at the beginning. Um, we can think through maybe how we understand the the galaxy of meat alternatives um, and how we'll be exploring them over meat alternative months. But I think it's also just a useful framework for people to know when people throw out the term meat alternatives. What does that actually mean? Protein alternatives. What is that? Yeah, the difference between um, cultivated meat and the other types of lab-grown meat. For yeah. sure. Yeah, for sure. So let's start with the the big umbrella of um, protein alternatives. And today we're, we're going to be talking mostly about meat alternatives alternatives. Um, I think it's important to note that protein alternatives can include dairy, it can include seafood. Those are really rich and interesting categories in themselves. But if we tried to do all of that and meat alternatives in one fell swoop, um, we might get ourselves into a little bit of trouble. So um, dairy alternatives, I think most of you are are probably familiar. That's been on on the market for a long time. Meat alternatives have as well, but there's a lot of movement in the meat alternative space that I think is really important to watch right now, probably a little bit more so than the dairy alternative space. Um, And seafood alternatives, emerging trend, super interesting, has not quite hit uh, significance in terms of volume quite yet. So maybe we'll explore that a little bit later. But I think um, in terms of what's top of mind, biggest, you know, trend to watch right now uh, is meat alternatives. Um, So let's get into it with within meat alternatives, within the umbrella of meat alternatives, we can kind of divide them into two areas. So the first one would be high protein. And the second would be meat mimickers. And of course, these are not uh, completely siloed distinctions, right? You can have a meat mimicking uh, 
alternative product that is really high in protein. Um, but for, for the kind of sake of how we understand it, you have uh, high protein meat alternatives and meat mimicking alternatives. So what does that mean? High protein would mean things like uh, chickpeas, lentils, kind of just the classic Let's say you go back 50 years, someone is a vegan, they need protein in their diet, what are they going to eat? Um, so that's the kind of the first form of meat alternative. You can think of that maybe as the more basic. Are you uh, differentiating this based on uh, purpose? So, for example, if a product, the purpose of the product is to mimic meat, is to be an alternative to meat, to be a steak or a burger or whatever it is um, that is, uh, of course, um, vegan or, or plant-based. Um, and the other ones is just more the purpose of providing protein. Exactly. I like that. And I would even take that one step further, not just the purpose of how the ingredient is necessarily intended, but how it is also received. Right. And okay. I think that's the difference there. Like a, a brand could. Intend, consumed. Exactly. Yeah. A brand could intend something to be a meat mimicker. Um, but unless that's received by consumers as actually being a valid meat mimicker, right? It actually has that taste, that texture, uh, color, all that good stuff. Um, having both of those in conversation is really important. Uh, that's less relevant for high protein, right? Lentil is not a, a lentil product, let's say, could be intended to be um, as a meat alternative, but um, mostly that's that kind of lives in the realm of consumption and how people intend to consume it. Okay. Um, that's a great point. So we have high protein, and meat mimickers. Um, so let's leave high protein to the side because that's a little bit more of the basic category and we'll look at, at meat mimickers. So when we say meat mimickers, we mean um, products or ingredients that offer the, as I said before, the taste, texture, smell, um, color, what else could be in there? Uh, it's recreating the experience. Exactly, of, the experience of, yeah. of eating meat that you don't necessarily have to to think twice, right? Um, and not only is it the, the actual character of the the product itself but it's also how it can be used right so can it can it be thrown on the grill can it be um you know baked roasted etc um and not every product checks all of those boxes but the products that check the majority of those boxes are at least very clear about what they accomplish we're seeing those to be the most successful so within meat mimickers um we have two further categories so stay with me here as we kind of build this um plot um so we have ingredients with meaty tastes or textures and we have lab-grown. So we'll start with the, the latter, so lab-grown. Um, lab-grown meats are really exciting. This is something that we're starting to see really take off right now, especially where TasteWise is headquartered in Tel Aviv. Um, so we have some really amazing companies that are doing work here in Israel on uh, lab-grown meats. Um, so we have you know things like Redefine Meat, Olive Meats, all, a lot of great companies doing good work. Um, and within lab-grown meats, there's you know, lots of really incredible science that's being developed right now. So this is something that is very much in process. Mm -hmm. um, but we're seeing that lab-grown really falls into two categories right now. We've got uh, 3D printed meat and we've got cultured meat. So the difference between that would be something produced um, by a machine, right? 3D printing, it's a little bit kind of self-obvious, but something that is printed from organic material. Um, so we're seeing things like that for, you know, for steaks predominantly. Um, and then cultured meat is more uh, in a lab using, again, organic processes, but to, to grow within the lab. So when we say lab-grown, we mean both of those things. So 3D printed and uh, cultured. Um, if we head back to the, the other category, so ingredients with a meaty taste or texture, those break down into two further groups. So we're looking at um, raw ingredients. So these would be ingredients that approximate uh, meat. So that's a little bit different than high protein, right? Because the, the primary driver to turn to them isn't necessarily for protein content. It's for that meat experience. So a great example would be carrot bacon. That's a trend we've seen recently. Carrot bacon. Carrot bacon. Yeah. So carrot that is prepared in a way that resembles bacon. 
Um, oh, okay. So the taste isn't going to be necessarily exactly the same, but the crunchiness, the, you know, preparing it on a pan, all, mm -hmm. all that good stuff. Um, so that's an example of a, of a ingredient that may not necessarily come to mind immediately when you think of meat alternative, right? Mm -hmm. But the preparation of it um, allows it to have that meaty taste or texture. Um, another example of that might be jackfruit. Right. Jackfruit barbecue. Um, we're seeing that a lot. That's something that really approximates kind of pulled meat or pulled pork. So that would be an example there. Um, and then the other category is uh, the kind of vegan bacon, deli meats, jerky burger. This is where impossible uh, beyond all the, the big brands in the space, veggie burgers, corn, yeah. you name it. Right. Um, that's where all of that lives. So if you think about kind of this whole mapping, we start off with the umbrella of meat alternatives. But you can see that within that there's a whole lot that's going on. Some are dependent on how. Uh, you know, something is produced like lab grown. Some is, uh, you know, how something is marketed. Um, some of it is how even down to home cooking, right? How something is prepared, carrot bacon, right? And we're not seeing a lot of carrot bacon products, but we're seeing a, an interest in carrot being yeah. prepared as bacon at home. So there's a lot going on here um, that you can kind of understand from a variety of sources. Yeah. And I think it's, um, you earlier, you mentioned kind of the, either the purpose or the driver for these types of products. So for example, if the product that we're talking about is a meat mimicker, like, a, for example, an, an impossible burger, right? right? So you have to think about, is the driver for eating an impossible burger the fact that I want to recreate the experience of, you know, eating a cheeseburger, right, with an alternative for both cheese and for the burger itself? Um, or am I doing this for the value in protein that uh, perhaps I'm lacking? Maybe it's because there are um, so many protein options out there that it is just not that big of a deal, right? Because we know for a fact that vegan is the fastest rising, is the biggest um, diet in the U.S. and probably in, in definitely in Israel, but also probably in uh, many other places uh, in the world. So I wonder if the driver for a lot of these um, is always more on the, the experience side. Like it's more important to experience the the feel of frying bacon than mm -hmm. it is to recreate the very specific taste. Although I, I did have uh, an Impossible Burger and it tastes actually really good. I, it's, um, I think that I don't know if we're necessarily trying to recreate specific tastes, more like you said, the experience itself. Because for me, at least as I had, uh, I think I had it at just one of the burger chains here in Israel. And I felt this doesn't taste like a burger, right? This tastes just like something else that mm. is delicious, right? I mean, but um, uh, for my friends who are vegan, at least, this is, of course, more anecdotal rather than database. Sure. This is more about recreating the experience of sitting down and having a burger. Right. And I think I think you're kind of hitting the nail right on the head that the recreation aspect or how important that is really depends on the motivations you bring with you to the table. Um, so, for example, these the motivations that we're seeing that pull people to plant-based meat or meat alternatives, um, again, are not siloed. They're not necessarily distinct from one another. Uh, there may have been a time where we would have said, okay, you know, a veggie burger is just for vegans, vegetarians, right? Um, but we're not seeing that to be the case anymore. Someone can sit down and tuck into a impossible burger because they really care about planetary health. They might eat meat every other day of the week, but let's say on Mondays, they've decided to have, you know, meat-free Mondays, which is something uh, we're seeing out there in the market. And, and they've decided that, uh, you know, having an impossible burger is the way to go. They might not necessarily care. And again, anecdotally, they might not necessarily care that it doesn't taste exactly like the burger they'll eat the next day, right? But the fact that they're having this experience of vegan eating, that's another type of recreation, right? It's yeah. creating for themselves a vegan experience. Whereas someone else might say, hey, 
for, you know, dietary reasons or whatever, um, that's not necessarily related to sustainability. Um, I'm going to go completely meat free and I really am missing that taste of meat. And so they choose that way. So I think uh, there's a lot of different um, reasons why someone might be choosing to recreate. But again, as we see in the, even the name of, of the kind of the concept, we're thinking about meat alternatives, right? It's benchmarked to something else. Meat yeah. alternatives are an alternative to meat. They are something yeah, that it's is- It's also the proof that you can have this experience and enjoy it um, without um, animal cruelty and exactly. while promoting the things that you believe in. I think one of the most interesting, um, I don't I don't know if phenomena is the, the right word, but one of the interesting things to come up as a result of this is the nonprofit organizations that are using technology to promote these ideas, which I think is amazing. So we're going to be talking to a few of them this month, uh, like the Good Food Institute and the Modern Art Agriculture Foundation. So these are companies that are uh, these are nonprofits that are primarily using technology and collaborations with startups like Redefined Meats, like um, Aleph uh, Farms, um, who just recently had a, a big round. They're using the collaboration with these companies in order to promote the um, avenues through which you can produce these meat alternatives to make it more prevalent in retailers, to make it more prevalent on um, uh, restaurant menus. Um, so you're seeing that uh, it becomes easier and easier to actually have that experience, get the protein that you need um, without really, uh, quote unquote, sacrificing any. Right. And we're in an incredibly, I think, exciting moment for this. Um, there is unprecedented attention to sustainability. Uh, that took a little bit of a dip during pandemic time, but we're seeing it rising again. It's back. People are considering it. They're thinking about it. Um, climate change has never been more urgent than it is now um, or addressing climate change. Uh, the meat production industry is a huge contributor to climate change. Um, and aside from all of that, we're also seeing... Um, you know, these companies, for example, like we've just mentioned, Beyond Meat, Impossible, Redefine, all of these different companies are, are using their own specific way um, to make an impact on this space. So we're seeing sort of an alignment between consumer conceptions and priorities mm -hmm. and the resources available and the products available on the market. So that there's a really, I think, a lot of exciting changes coming. Between health and sustainability as motivations, are you seeing yeah. any one that is clearly more prevalent than the other? So it's a really interesting question. Um, and I, when we talked about this previously, kind of during pandemic times, we would often phrase this as personal health over planetary health, right? People were kind of, uh, they were making their world smaller. They were worrying about kind of what was going on in their own bodies and more necessarily more than what was going on in the planet. Of course, that's not true across the board, but we were seeing that kind of reflected in the data. Um, but now we're seeing that there is this return to sustainability and especially, of course, within the meat alternatives landscape. So um, within home and restaurant consumer conversations. So these are moments where people are sitting down to the table, either it's at home, they've just made something, they've ordered it, um, or they've, you know, they're sitting down to a restaurant and they've, again, ordered it off of a menu. Um, so if we're looking at the entire kind of picture of both of those areas, we're seeing that um, around five and a half percent of uh, conversations about meat alternatives focus on animal rights. So not necessarily surprising, um, but 5% is a pretty large chunk, right, of people caring about how the meat is sourced, uh, cruelty-free, all the, the things that you just said a few minutes ago. Um, and that's 42 times the benchmark. So that means that that's, people are, are 42 times more likely to be interested in animal rights when eating meat alternatives than generally, right? That makes a lot of sense. If somebody cares about animal rights, they're not going to be likely eating animals. Yeah. So they're going to be eating meat alternatives. So that's already, we know, a, a huge deal. Um, sustainability, 
um, is only around two and a quarter percent. Um, so let's say about half of the interest in animal rights. Um, so we're going from you know just the, the concentration on animals themselves to the health of the planet through sustainability. And that's uh, six times the benchmark. Um, so six times more interested in uh, sustainability for meat alternatives than the average in food and beverage. But that's growing 37% year over year. And that's one of the biggest growing motivations we see for meat alternatives. So sustainability, it's it's back, it's here, and people care about it. They care about it a little bit less right now than they do animal rights, uh, but it is growing pretty significantly. Health, on the other hand, is a full 15% of meat alternatives. So that's, let's see, um, almost triple the amount of mentions for animal sustainability and um, I can't do the math here, but let's say around seven times <laughs> the yeah. amount for sustainability. Um, and that's about six times the average. So that's in and of itself interesting that health we're seeing is a big motivator across the board. Leave meat alternatives to the side. When we look at just the general food and beverage industry, um, health is important. And the fact that it's six times more important for meat alternatives than it is on average for the rest of, of you know, the categories in the in the uh, food and beverage industry, mm-hmm. that's really interesting. So, so health is kind of the, the winner. Health is the winner here. Yeah. In terms of growth, sustainability is the winner. It's growing faster than health interest is year over year. Um, but we are seeing that among these kind of top three between animal rights, sustainability, and health, health is more penetrated. Animal rights is more, let's say, flashy for the category, meaning it has the larger gap between the benchmark and the penetration, um, whereas sustainability is growing the highest. So each of them have kind of their own... Uh, sustainability is growing um, the most quickly. Exactly. So sustainability is growing the fastest, health is the most penetrated, and animal rights is the biggest gap between the average. So it's like the most were... niche interest from the perspective of uh, branding and, and marketing. So your sure. recommendation, uh, if you wanted to, to kind of make the bet, um, it would be on sustainability as it's growing really quickly. I think so. Yeah. yeah. But I think sustainability and health can't really be parsed apart. Um, I think that we're seeing that for years now, there's been this really correlated interest between health and sustainability. You don't have to just pick one. I think that um, there's sort of this cultural uh, current here where people are understanding the health benefits to sustainable eating and drinking. Um, mm-hmm. So again, I don't think you have to choose one, but if you had to choose one, I would say probably bank on sustainability. Yeah. There are a lot of companies doing really interesting things with their marketing um, that I would keep an eye on, like um, a zero egg. Yeah. Um, not really in the meat alternative. Just egg also. Um, yeah. So just egg, zero egg. Um, Oatly, of course, that yeah. we're always uh, talking about with uh, campaigns like um, Wow No Cow. Yeah, yeah. Right. For so sure. things uh, things like that are I mean, sometimes we when we think about marketing, we think about um, the the phrasing that we use, the keywords that we use. So often we would relegate it into something fun that we thought about that uh, that some brilliant marketer just had an idea for. But often it is that plus a knowledge of what is your audience actually looking for, right? So for example, if we take this Oatly example of wow, no cow, right? That I would say talks more to animal rights and sustainability than it does for health. Right. But I think also what is really cool about this moment, and this goes back to what I was saying before about this alignment between the amount of options in the market and consumer interest. Um, we're also seeing, you know, Oatly has made for themselves this kind of cool, quirky branding, right? Their their company persona. Um, I, I think back to the during Shavuot, which is a, a holiday here in Israel, the Jewish holiday where people eat a lot of dairy. Um, and they did this big campaign in Tel Aviv where they were saying, hey, isn't Shavuot this weekend? Like, why didn't I get invited anywhere? And um, so it was this funny kind of quirky way. And 
and didn't mention sustainability, didn't mention veganism, didn't mention anything. So they're sort of normalizing what it's like to involve um, these, you know, animal alternative products into yeah. your day-to-day life. And I think there's a lot of room for that. A as big well. takeaway here, um, you know, to me as a marketer, but also I think to to everybody listening who are working on these types of products, is that this doesn't necessarily mean call out sustainability. There are sure. things that make sense to call out when you're, for example, making recipes. So when you're preparing recipes, uh, you have to think about keywords and search terms. You have to think about SEO. You have to think about how are people very specifically finding your piece of content because that what a recipe is. Where does it meet them throughout their day? So there I would advocate, yeah, definitely use the very specific words. I don't know if people are looking for the term sustainability, but for example, they will be looking for alternatives to right? Or for example, around like 4th of July, people are going to be looking for alternatives to barbecue, right? For very specific things. But when you're building the brand of your uh, either meat mimicking product um, or, um, or just your alternative protein product, then you have to think more about the, what are some other ways that you can express the actual motivations that people are trying to accomplish by turning to your product? Right. And I think one of those, and this is an interesting category that we've just kind of um, touch, we're not going to touch on so much in our report, but it is something that I think is interesting is the role of certifications in all of this, right? That certifications in and of themselves are, can be a form of marketing. If somebody doesn't, you know, someone might go to the grocery store and doesn't want to be beat over the head with the concept of sustainability and everything that they purchase, but if it's important to them and their family and they can see that, you know, that there is that certification of sustainability on their, let's say can of tuna, um, that can accomplish when you say certification, do you mean like the vegan friendly stamp or exactly, like that? exactly? Yeah. Or there's different, you know, organizations, governmental or otherwise, that certify different kinds of products. Um, and so I think that we're seeing a rise in interest in certifications generally. Um, and I think that that's an interesting one to because work. it makes it easier for people to buy things, right? When you look right. at a product in um, in the supermarket and you know that you're looking for something that is either um, that either matches a diet or right. that is alternative protein that is um, a very specific category, you want that called out on the packaging, right? right? And you need something that you're able to, to trust. And there's exactly. a lot of these nonprofit organizations. I think people uh, generally tend to trust nonprofits more mm-hmm. than they do uh, corporations. I think all of us have that tendency. And a lot of these are the companies that are actually providing these uh, certifications. And it's one of the most brilliant ways, I think, that they are promoting um, healthy consumption or sustainable consumption of uh, of these products, yeah. right? So it just makes it easier for people to see the product on the shelf. Okay, it has exactly what I need. They've seen a recipe that calls out the specific um, diet that they're trying to follow. It makes the decision to buy that thing uh, much easier and then in turn creates less waste. And also in turn, by encouraging trustworthiness of your product, you're increasing consumption frequency because we're seeing that people are really, really wanting to be able to trust products and they're 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 smart consumers right people know kind of for the most part when they're being taken what's the, the phrase taken for a loop taken for a i guess spin, yeah spin, whatever <laughs> just made both of those up i think but um when people are are their leg is being pulled um yeah. and a, a great example of that just anecdotally I, recently i was at a um like a kind of like a dollar store type of place um i saw a yoga mat i needed a yoga mat and it said on the front eco-friendly yoga mat 
Um, and if I looked at it for more than two seconds, it was wrapped in shrink wrap plastic. Um, it was like clearly made out of the type of foam that's not right. So yeah. it, people have this sense of when they're when they're not being told the truth. And I think that really matters. Um, and people are much more likely to rebuy your product if they feel like it's trustworthy. And certifications are, are a great way to do that. Yeah. Um, I have another point about sustainability and health that I want to bring up. So um, what I mentioned before about animal rights, sustainability and health, that was for the kind of the matrix of home and restaurant consumer conversations, which is kind of how we describe consumer interest. If we look at just restaurant conversations, so these are moments when people are sitting down to a table uh, at a restaurant, they're dining out um, or picking up and they're talking about what they're eating. Um, those numbers drop significantly. Um, so animal rights, let's say, was about five, five and a half percent of the conversation of meat alternatives when thinking about home and restaurant together. When it's just restaurant, that drops to three percent. Sustainability drops to one percent um, and climate change, which we didn't mention before, but drops to well below even one percent. So this is kind of um, restaurants versus home. Exactly. So we're seeing that in food service when people are talking about eating the very same meat alternative products that they eat at home, they're much less likely to call out, uh, you know, animal rights, sustainability, things like that. Right. But health still really top of mind. Um, so that's an interesting conversation and we can maybe talk about this um, at another time because it's a little bit more granular, but what does that mean for positioning on menus? What does that mean yeah. for, you know, are people dropping it because they're not actually told on the menus if the seafood they're eating, let's say, or the, you know, whatever product that they're eating um, is is not actually, or is actually sustainable or, you know, are they, are they seeing that correlation between Beyond Meat Burger and whatever, or are they, um, so they're not able to call it out because they don't know, or, yeah. Do they know? And when you're eating out, you're much more interested in the experience of it, right? You're much more likely to post a, a picture on Instagram and say, hey, look at this, you know, beautiful burger I'm eating. It's so great. It's vegan, blah, 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 right? Yeah. Um, and you're going to leave the sustainability to the side. So I think that is an interesting thing to note, but we can talk about that more in depth another time. Yeah. I mean, that um, instinctually makes more sense to me. Um, you're especially right now, as in many places in the world, people are still kind of going to restaurants for, for the first time. I know that personally... I haven't been to many restaurants still, like maybe once or twice since things started opening up. And when I do, I care much more about the experience of going there with someone, for example, rather than uh, what I'm actually eating, right? Um, and I think that um, I, I don't have the data for this, but um, it would be interesting to take a look at how things like indulgence and, you know, gourmet yeah, yeah. Are kind of intersect with point. this because... Um, I mean, if you are a person that follows a specific diet or, you know, based on your beliefs, based on the things that are important to you, um, you will only eat, uh, for example, in uh, restaurants that uh, that offer vegan options or plant based options or non-negotiable. Yeah. You need to find those alternatives on the menu. Um, but still, the things that are going to most likely drive you to those uh, menu items is uh, the way it's being prepared at that restaurant, how well they do it, the experience of, uh, sure. of creating it. Yeah, yeah. and none of these things are, are independent, right? They all influence one another. But I think it would be a mistake for food service to, let's say, look at that data I just mentioned mm -hmm. and say, oh, okay, well, sustainability doesn't really matter to my consumers. I'm not going to worry about it, right? I think yeah. there there is something there, a little bit of tension that needs to be explored because um, we're seeing in the market, consumers do care about sustainability. They're just not uh, necessarily articulating it in the food service space. Yeah, when, when we talk about uh, social versus food service or home versus food service, yeah. um, there's you can very easily make the mistake of seeing these as completely different worlds 
where you have to remember these are the same people. This exactly. is us. This exactly. is all of us. Exactly. We're the same person whether we're ordering takeout or if you know we're going to a restaurant. We still care about the the same things. Maybe we're putting a bit more emphasis on the experience of going to a restaurant when we're posting on Instagram about you know this amazing you know uh, veggie burger that we just had at a at a restaurant. But um, we have seen a lot of restaurants have a lot of success when they used their actual menus in the, much the same way that uh, that marketers use content marketing, yeah. right? To convey a certain agenda. Um, it is not just something that you order off of a menu, but you're actually kind of helping something that's uh, that's greater than yourself, whether that is uh, usually that will tie back into sustainability and to, and to animal rights. Right. And we're seeing that the, the or I'll, I'll say this a little bit more anecdotally, um, when we see food service brands try to take, uh, you know, personal motivations, let's say like vegan health, whatever, even sustainability, um, and then they tie it to that experiential um, moment of being in a restaurant and then create ultimately an identity around it, we're seeing those really be successful. So the one that immediately comes to mind for me is Sweet Green. Yeah. Right. Sweet Green is a, a salad chain. Um, they have, you know, they focus on on health. Um, they're not necessarily vegan, but they do focus on, you know, a healthy choice. Right. But they've also made the conscious choice in their marketing and branding and the way they design their spaces and their menus to make it feel like this kind of exclusive, chic, um, yeah. like, you know, very popular among millennials. Um, and so being able to tie health to then the experience and both of those things come together, then there's this like really beautiful merger where people feel like, you know, it's cool to yeah. be healthy, right? So if people can, if food service can figure out how to do that with sustainability, I think there's a, a huge white space there, right? Um, yeah. Of making sustainability kind of the new sexy thing for food service. So uh, to kind of wrap us up, uh, you've been working on uh, putting together this report that we're going to be releasing later this month. Mm -hmm. By the way, I do, I do just want to mention that if you go to our website, tastewise.io right now, you can sign up for um, TasteWise Spotlight, which is our free product. It's not a trial. It's just free forever. Um, and you can use that in order to explore some of these trends on your own. Either that is specific products or trends or things that are related to alternative proteins or, of course, anything else. But can you give us a brief overview of uh, what you're working on for this report, what we can expect on August 18th? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's going to be a chock full of really cool trend insights um, into the kind of the meat alternatives world, that that mapping that we kind of talked about at the beginning. Um, so everything from trend insights to looking at the financial impact of, you know, what these trend insights can mean for the industry. Um, really interesting product white spaces for product innovation, um, call outs for, you know, actionable tips of what you can use for your marketing, um, you know, places where we're seeing big opportunity gaps. So places where we're seeing kind of underutilized ingredients or motivations. Um, we're also going to be doing some pricing analysis of big brand players in the game. So everything from impossible beyond, et cetera, looking at those, yeah. um, looking at emerging trends in the lab grown space. So Pretty much you name it. If it has to do with meat alternatives, it's probably going to be somewhere in the report. Um, but again, not touching so much on seafood or dairy. We're really looking at meat. Yeah, we'll save those for yeah, yeah. alternative <laughs> seafood month. Exactly. Of course. You could do a month for each one of these and, and run out of calendar calendar months in the year. 
<laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for putting all of that uh, together for us. Thank you. Uh, the Food Intelligence Podcast is produced by Ophir Nagar and is edited by Daniel Gal. Um, so thank you so much for this wonderful team that helps us uh, put this thing together. We've been having a blast uh, making it and uh, we're very appreciative of all of you listening. If there's anything that you want us to cover on one of these or on our TasteWise Lives, uh, feel free to send us a note at live at tastewise.io. And uh, with that, I'll hope to see you on the next one. Bye, everybody. Thank you.